All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning, we'll be continuing our time in the book of John. Last week, uh, Ben finished up uh, chapter 1. So this morning, we'll be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, I'll read through those for us in just a second. You can follow along, of course. But uh, before I do that, let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity we've had to be together already this morning. Um, God, to sing together, to worship together, to be together. And God, now I pray over the next few minutes as we dive into your word, your Holy Spirit would be at work to speak to our hearts and minds. God, I pray that we would hear from you during this time. God, I recognize that my words uh, aren't actually what we need to hear. God, what we need to hear is from you, what you would speak to us, how you would lead us and guide us. So, Holy Father, I pray um, that that is what would happen as we dive into your word here in just a second. Pray that you would be uh, honored and glorified. Pray that there would be great joy in this place. Pray that Jesus would be lifted high and we'd be drawn to you because of Christ. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, I'll go ahead and read through that passage. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. John chapter 2 opens at a wedding. You know, I've been to a lot of weddings in my lifetime. I'm sure that you have been to your fair share, right? And depending on your stage in life, maybe some more than others. But every wedding I've ever been to, the focus has always been on the bride and the groom. And usually in that order, so that the bride is ultimately the center of attention. But in the wedding that John presents here at the beginning of John chapter 2, we don't actually know who is getting married. We don't know why Jesus is there. We know that he was invited, but we don't know why he's there, who these people are. Are they friends? Are they relatives? Are they close family members? Uh, Jesus' mother is there, and she's obviously concerned about the situation for some reason. His new disciples are there with him. Um, his brothers are there with him. We don't know a lot else other than that. We do know, though, that from a uh, cultural standpoint, 
that weddings were certainly culturally significant events. Um, like, it's not too much of a stretch to say that weddings would have been an institution of this culture and in some sense of Judaism itself in first century Palestine. I mean, this would have been a lifetime-defining event, not only for the bride and groom, but for the family. I can't stress enough how big of a deal that weddings would have been within this context of first century Judaism, right? A societal institution that in some ways approaches the same level of importance as certain religious festivals or um, the significance of historical places from Israel's history or even the importance of temple worship. It's a big deal. So it's not at all surprising that Jesus is there. It's not at all surprising um, that his disciples are there with him. But it is a bit surprising, I think, that we don't know a lot about what, what is actually or who is actually getting married and why Jesus is there. Now, before we dive into why that is or, or, or a little more significance about the wedding, let me just say this before we go any further, is that this passage has been used a lot of ways over the years that I think are actually pretty um, not, they're not what John intended in the writing of this gospel and certainly not what this passage is about. I've heard this story used specifically in wedding ceremonies to say that marriage is a blessed institution because Jesus performs his first sign or first miracle at a wedding. Uh, marriage is certainly an institution ordained by God, but this story is not about, God, about Jesus blessing the wedding and the institution of marriage. I've heard this story used to justify the drinking of alcohol by believers. That's not what this story is about at all. I've also literally heard this story used from the pulpit to say that Jesus actually made grape juice and not wine. And that's why it tasted so good. But that's not actually what this story is about either. And making that argument means that you are just putting forth some type of agenda that you have and in the process displaying an incredible lack of scholarship and preparation when you make that argument. But let me do say this. There is a point to the story. The fact that we don't know a lot about the bride and the groom or how they were related to Jesus or why Jesus' family was there, it just sort of serves to prove that Bible stories aren't just stories. They have a purpose. They have a point. They have a particular focus. And in this case, the focus is not on the bride and groom. It's not on the institution of marriage. The focus is on Jesus. The story serves as a sort of springboard that John uses to launch into the long trajectory of Jesus' story that ultimately ends with his hour being fulfilled with his death and resurrection. Understanding how John structures this book and this gospel, I think, will help us out a good bit in understanding what's going on with this passage and why John chapter 2, uh, why this is at the beginning of John chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you to stick with me here for just a moment because it's going to feel like we're in a classroom, and that's not my intent, but I do think it's important to sort of get what John is doing. At a, the most basic and simplistic level, the book of John is divided into two parts. The first part of John 
is constructed as um, this series of miracles of Jesus being seen as signs, right? Signs that point to something specific about Jesus that show Jesus' Jewish contemporaries how he is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. At a basic level, that's what the beginning of John or the first half of John is about. The second part of the book is largely Jesus interpreting his hour of glorification, namely that hour that just got mentioned in this passage of his death and resurrection and what that's about and why it's important and what's going on with that. Each of these two sections are further subdivided that allow John that subdivided in a way that allowed John to sort of explore and present the person of Jesus um, with a certain intent that John has. Right, so I guess part of what I'm saying is that John intentionally uses historical material about Jesus, but he organizes that material topically to show us who Jesus is through those further subdivisions and explorations of these stories and signs and things like that in order to interpret and present the identity of Jesus. That's important because part of what Ben laid out for us whenever we started exploring the book of John, Ben called us to say, hey, let's see Jesus in a whole new way as we move through the book of John. Let's see Jesus for who he truly is. Let's open our eyes. Let's be willing to expand what we see just a little bit. Right from our passage today and moving on through chapter 11, John paints a picture of Jesus repeatedly stepping into um, the institutions and festivals and historical landmarks of Judaism and then showing how he is the, ultimately the fulfillment of those things, right? But how his fulfillment is far greater than anything expected so far. So let me just give you a couple of examples. In John chapter 2, at the very beginning here, we see Jesus stepping into the institution of Jewish marriage. At the end, the second part of John chapter 2, we see Jesus stepping into the temple. In chapter 3, we see Jesus dealing with rabbis. In chapter 4, we see Jesus dealing with a historical well in Samaria. In chapter 5, Jesus deals with the Sabbath. In chapter 6, Jesus deals with the Passover. And it just repeats with different things like that until you get through the end of chapter 11. And specifically with our passage today and many of those other stories that we're going to encounter in the next few weeks as we deal with the book of John, the way John deals with these stories is a four-step process. You can look at any of these stories and sort of interpret them through these, this lens. It doesn't hold true across the board, but it's a general guide. It's that Jesus steps into a significant event or festival or place or institution. He explores the symbols and institutions of that event to say something about his identity in order to reveal himself or, as John says, to show his glory. He provides something in abundance far above what the event or the location or the festival intends to provide. And then he's either understood or misunderstood in some way at the end of that story. Now, with all that said, let's go back to this passage specifically and sort of move through it for a second. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus steps into the significant event that is a wedding. 
he goes to a wedding with his disciples and his mother. We're assuming his brothers are there with him as well. Maybe some of his other family. Then in verses 3 through 5, we see this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There are a few things I think to see here. First, we're introduced to one of the symbols that Jesus will interact with in this passage. It's wine. The wine's run out. Second, take note that running out of wine at a wedding would have been uh, socially disastrous for the groom's family. Not only uh, for this event and in the midst of this event, but for a long time, probably would have been remembered as the family that ran out of wine at the wedding. Third, Jesus' interactions with his mother seem pretty abrupt here. But his interaction with his mother is not as abrupt in the original language as it appears in English. Some other passage, some other translations of Scripture deal with this differently. And it's not just woman. It's something similar to dear woman to sort of soften the blow. Because the word that Jesus uses here for woman is the same word that Jesus uses many times throughout the gospel. If you read the entire um, gospel, you'll see it over and over and ult- over. Ultimately, the last time Jesus uses that word is when he's on the cross and he looks down at his mom and he says, um, ultimately he tells John to, to, to take care of her, but he uses that same uh, term there. It is a very formal form of address, but we shouldn't hear it in the same way as we do in English, like woman. It's not like that. It's definitely different than him calling her mom or mother, but it's, it's formal and not harsh. Fourth, uh, Jesus' response here is sort of a colloquialism in Greek that says something. It's, pretty, it's interpreted pretty well. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me and you? What, what, is, what does this running out of wine have to do with me? Why are you bringing me into this? All right, and that intent comes through in English. And Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. That's pretty significant that he says that. Um, His death and resurrection is not at hand. And I think part of what's going on there, even though it's uh, it's not clear, is that Jesus knows exactly what this miracle, what this sign will cost him because it's going to start him on the trajectory to the cross. It's going to set him on a road that leads directly to the cross. Right? Fifthly, interestingly enough, Mary is bold enough to tell the servants to do whatever Jesus says. Jesus says, why are you involving me in this? And then Mary says, do whatever he says. Mary knows exactly who Jesus is and what he's about. She always had the answer to the question of Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. Verses 6 through 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine. Did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, 
His disciples believed in him. Uh, just a couple more things to note. Um, we are introduced to the second symbol from Judaism that Jesus interacts with. It's these stone water pots. Their original intent was to be used to hold water for ritual washing and ritual purification. Um, and Jesus gives them a new purpose. Jesus uses them for uh, another purpose. They could no longer be used for their original intent. We'll come back to that. But part of what we also see here is that when Jesus decides to provide wine, he doesn't provide just a little bit. He provides an abundance of wine. A lot of wine. And not only a lot of wine, really good wine such that people take notice. And the master of the feast says to the groom, you save the best for last. In actuality, the groom had done no such thing. The groom had messed up. In actuality, Jesus had done something that the groom couldn't do, did not prepare to do, and couldn't have pulled off. And Jesus does something here to keep the groom from paying a high price the high price of shame and guilt. John tells us that this was Jesus' first sign, his first miracle that pointed to who he really was. God revealed to us in Jesus, right, a God who provides abundantly and graciously. All right, so if we look at the exact nature of the story, Jesus stepping into a Jewish wedding, Jesus interacting with wine and stone jars. Jesus providing an abundance of wine. And then the disciples believing him and putting their faith in him. What is it that we take away? What is it that this story actually reveals about who Jesus is? If John is, is about the business of revealing who Jesus is, so that we might believe in Jesus, which is what John says is the purpose of this book, if if this is about Jesus revealing his glory, meaning showing who he actually is, revealing his identity and his person and what he's about, then what do we take away from what we see here in John chapter 2 about who Jesus is? I will just offer a few things here. Number one, verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Part of what we should see from John chapter 2, and probably the intent of part of what John is saying in this gospel, is that Jesus, is that God is now on the scene. And he is the one in whom faith should be placed, right? Everything is about to change because the Messiah is finally present. And we are on that journey to that hour of glorification, that hour of Jesus being on the cross and being resurrected. Everything is about to change. When John says that Jesus manifested his glory, he's saying that God is now present in a new way. The words that John uses would have taken the first century Jewish readers back or the first century Jewish hearers back to the Old Testament story of the tabernacle where God's presence was physically with his people, where God's Shekinah glory was physically with his people. 
So what are we seeing about who Jesus is? We're seeing that Jesus is divine, and we're seeing that Jesus is present, and that God is with his people in a new way. We're seeing that God is here, and everything is about to change because of Jesus. It's part of the intent, I believe, of what John is saying. Number two, in this story, Jesus takes the stone pots used for ritual purification, and he gives them another purpose, such that their original purpose, they could no longer be used for their original purpose again. They could no longer be used for the purpose of ritual purification and watching, washing. So it seems that part of what Jesus wants to say is that these old ways of ritual washing are ultimately finding their fulfillment in him. They were just a pointer to Jesus. There's more at play here than Jesus needing somewhere to put the wine. Jesus is saying something new is here. There's a new way to be right before God. There's a new way to be clean. Right? Ultimately, we know that that new way comes through Jesus because we know what happens at the end of the story. If Jesus' miracle here was a sign that the waters and perhaps even the whole system of Jewish purification and atonement was being set aside, then what was replacing it? Jesus himself was replacing it through what he does with his death and resurrection. So what does that tell us about who Jesus is? Not only is Jesus God on earth, Jesus himself is making a way for us to be able to live in his presence He's doing that in a new way. Jesus himself is doing something that we could not do. He's doing something that the water could never do, right? Jesus himself is making his people pure and holy to stand before God. And that symbolic water, all it was ever intended to do was to point to Jesus and to find its fulfillment in Jesus. And now Jesus here is to fulfill what that water could never really do. Number three, in this story, Jesus miraculously provides an abundance of wine. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, we see this about God's promised Messiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of Morrow of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In this story, we see just a small version of that promise from Isaiah. We see a Messiah who provides an abundance of wine, a Savior who takes away reproach, shame, turns what could be a really bad situation for the groom into a good one. Throughout the Bible, wine is often used to signify a variety of things. In the Old Testament, a lack of wine symbolized the presence of God's judgment on his people for their idolatry and injustice and disobedience. An abundance of wine, like in the passage that I just read, would also in turn signify the incoming of the messianic age, the inbreaking of God's kingdom, 
which is what John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is about. Right? Jesus is seen transforming the water set, afi- set aside for the Jewish rites of purification into the wine symbolic of the presence of the Messianic age. The hour that Jesus references his death and resurrection is about to be upon them. But also in Scripture, and I think we have to live with the tension of these things, also in Scripture, drinking a cup of wine could also be an image for drinking a cup of wrath. There's this story in the book of Jeremiah that parallels the wedding at Cana. God tells Jeremiah to join this festive celebration where there is a bunch of wine uh, waiting for the people. And the people present expect there to be great joy and celebration like those attending the wedding in Cana. And Jeremiah turns their expectations upside down because of their idolatry and injustice. And he says this, You shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Every jar shall be filled with wine. They will say to you, Do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will dash them one against another. Fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. You know, immediately prior to turning the water into wine, Jesus tells his mother that his hour had not yet come. The coming hour, the events of which Jesus set into motion with this miracle was initially going to be an hour of wrath. Jesus said it when he was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If we're asking ourselves, what does this story tell us about who Jesus is? The story tells us that Jesus provides an abundance. He provides far more than could be expected. That he's here, that he's present, that he's the Messiah, that God's promise of a, prompt, of, of a Messiah is present. He's on the scene. The kingdom is starting. The Messianic age is beginning. In the provision of this wine, the generosity of the kingdom of God is on full display. Right? Because Jesus steps into the gap for this groom and his family who had in some ways failed. And he doesn't leave them in that failure and that shame they would experience. He pays what the bridegroom could not or did not. He does what the groom couldn't do and he does it abundantly. I think when we see the picture of the wine and the abundance of wine in this passage, we have to hold all these things in tension. Can this really be about abundance and wrath and Jesus doing something for us that we couldn't do and a pointer to the cross and all of those things together? And I think we have to say, yeah, all of that's probably going on. I think part of what we have to see in John chapter 2 is that John is presenting a pretty symbolic picture. Jesus is on the scene. His hour is coming. He's, he provides wine abundantly. 
but also it's going to cost him something great in order to provide abundantly for his people. Right? And so, brothers and sisters, we have to see that the story isn't just about Jesus turning water into wine. It's not just about a wedding. The story is about Jesus showing up, saving the best for last. The story is about God breaking in to do new things and providing far more abundantly than anyone could imagine. The story is about Jesus being the fulfillment of all that God promised and doing for us what we could not do. If you want to see who Jesus is, then you need to see him as someone who willingly steps into the gap for his people. You need to see Jesus who's someone who willingly goes out for his people, who doesn't leave his people in shame and guilt, and instead he takes that shame and guilt upon himself, and instead gives us something abundant. Right, if we're asking ourselves, what does this story show us about who Jesus is? Then I think part of what we should see is that God is on the scene, Jesus is present, the kingdom is starting, And that king is going to step into the gap for his people and do something that they could not do for themselves. Something that they are unable to do for themselves. If we want to get a big picture of Jesus, right, the call for us this morning, I think, in part at least, is to see Jesus in that way, as the one who steps into the gap, who doesn't leave us in shame and guilt and despair, but goes out on our behalf, and does for us that which we couldn't do. We're going to enter into a time of response. And I would just um, ask you as we enter into that time of response to, to maybe reflect upon that very thing. Like, who do you see that Jesus is in a new way as we look at this passage? Like, what are you seeing about Jesus and his identity and his glory? And maybe take just a few minutes and reflect upon that as we enter into this time of response. During this time of response, we'll have an opportunity to sing together as the band comes back up and we can worship in that way. We have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back. Um, We have an opportunity as well, though, to take communion. We take communion every Sunday here at Redemption in order to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. We have a a physical opportunity to come forward this morning, take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Remember what Christ has done and proclaim to one another that we believe it and that it's good and that it's true. So whether you're a member of Redemption or not, I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you can remember what Christ has done and you can proclaim that it's good and true, I would invite you to come and take communion this morning uh, and celebrate in that way, remembering the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us going out on our behalf. I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue on in that time of response. God, thank you for this opportunity we've had so far this morning to hear from your word, to be together, to worship, to pray, to meet with you in this place. And God, now over the next few minutes as we uh, respond, whether that be reflecting on what you've shown us and how you've spoken to us this morning, 
whether that means spending a moment in prayer, coming to take communion, singing together, worshiping together in that way. I pray that you would continue to speak to us in these moments of response, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us and to show you who you are, the God who provides abundantly and graciously, who goes out on our behalf, who does what we can't do. God, I pray that you would help us to grasp that big picture of how great and generous and incredible you truly are. See that in the picture of what Christ has done for us. See that in the picture of us celebrating his death and resurrection now. God, I pray as we close our time together that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, that we would be drawn to you, that you would receive much glory and we would have great joy. God, we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.